What a beautiful day. Supposedly it's supposed to rain this afternoon, but it sure is nice today, isn't it? It was a beautiful day yesterday. The Lord is definitely blessing us in this area. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul exhorts the gospel-focused believers to, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. When I, every time I read that verse, I think to myself, the if possible should be bolded. <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes to be at peace with all men. It's important for us, though, to focus on the second part there. It says, so far as it depends on you. And ultimately, that's what it's about. We need to check our own hearts, see what we can do to be at peace with all men. How do we live at peace with all people in a world that is angry, in a world that's always uh, looking to belittle us and talk bad about us and insult us and revile us? How do we do this? Well, today Jesus gives us our answer in our passage in Matthew chapter 5. He gives us the answer on how to live at peace with all men, how to be reconciled with one another, and how to love one another. The most important thing for us to remember as we make our way through the Sermon on the Mount is the focus must start with ourselves first and foremost. You must read this sermon. You must... Hear these sermons as we go through and evaluate and examine these passages. You must check your own heart first. Because it's not going to work any other way. And the fact of the matter is is that this message that Jesus preached is not a popular message in our world. It is not one that people would take to, to heart. We live in a very angry world, don't we? People are always angry. But we as followers of Christ are called to live without anger, (laughs) with peace amongst each other and loving one another. So I want to challenge you as we make our way through this again to redirect your attention to your own hearts. (laughs) Don't think as you're going through these passages, you know, it's it's very much like those, uh, those marriage passages. When you're reading through Ephesians chapter 5 and you're married to somebody, the tendency for us is to read the passage with our spouse in mind, what she needs to do better. When in fact, we read these passages, we're supposed to evaluate our own hearts. It's not a time for us to point out the flaws in everybody else we know in our, in our lives. It's a time to check our own hearts. And that doesn't mean we stay down and we walk out guilt-laden because we know the one who made peace with God, right? Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have a Savior that died for us. But we confess our sins when we're confronted by the Scriptures and we turn to Christ and we enjoy Him again. So to review, we started the first 13 verses of the Sermon on the Mount are found in chapter 5. It was the Beatitudes that Jesus started with, the the blessed attitudes and actions of the followers of Christ. The favor of God, which produces great joy on those who have a different focus than the world. We are focused on Christ, and we seek to live for Him. And so therefore, the favor of God is on us, and we rejoice in that truth, don't we? Second, we saw the mission of the church. The mission of his disciples. They were exhorted to be salt and light in the world. To preserve, to bring flavor, to reveal the truth to the world. This is an overview of our mission in this world as followers. We are the lights of the world. We're the revealers of God to the world. Because we follow the light of the world. The one who revealed God to the world. So that's what we're about. The mission. Jesus calls his disciples to that mission. Next, Jesus gave us an overview of of the mandates of his lordship. What he requires. He doesn't take and say, the law doesn't matter. In fact, he says, 
He did not come, notice in verse 17, to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. He says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then is least, or uh, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called greatest in the kingdom of heaven. For Jesus says to you and says to the disciples that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He makes it very clear, doesn't he? He showed us the supremacy of the word of God last week, didn't he? As we looked at this passage, we saw the stability of it, that it doesn't go away, and that He's not there to abolish but to fulfill it. And it can be stood on, and it will not pass away. He's taught the seriousness of the law of God and the Word of God, that it should be taken seriously, and that nothing should be ignored. And all that He says should be obeyed. And finally, He talked about the standard. That the standard is way higher than anything that we could imagine. A lot of people think that Jesus came into the world, and when Jesus came into the world, uh, there's no more law. But in fact, all he did was take and clarify the law, and he showed that the law of God is actually much more holy and much more higher of a standard than anything that we can attain in ourselves. See, the, the, the Pharisees had taken the law and, and, and changed it, and, and made it easier for people to accomplish, at least them. Those were, that were seeking self-righteousness. They could clean up the outside of the cup. But they had misunderstood the law and misrepresented the law and given a wrong explanation of the law. So Jesus is correcting this thinking. We saw that Jesus ultimately is the fulfillment of the law, isn't he? He did everything that the Mosaic law said to do. He did it perfectly, precisely. And that's good news for us, right? Why is that good news? Because we can't. None of us in the room are going to do it perfectly, correct? No one is going to obey the law of God perfectly. We want to. We desire to. But only Christ Jesus did it. He did it perfectly. And all of us who have repented and believed in Him, have trusted in Him, all of that righteousness that He accomplished is credited to our account, and we rejoice in that, don't we? We know God is good. Christ Jesus, our Lord, is our righteousness. The Jewish disciples were required to obey the law correctly, though. And followers of Jesus today, we are called to follow and obey the law of Christ. The heart of the law. The principles that He lays out. Many of the Ten Commandments are mentioned over again in the New Testament. You understand that. Out of the ten, nine of them are repeated. And out of those, I would say it's very clear that that is the law of Christ. That we should follow and obey those. Does this include all the Mosaic law? Well, that, that's a question I think that we could debate for years and years, couldn't we? And people have talked about this over and over and over. How much of the law do we keep, and of the Mosaic law that is, that given to the theocracy, to Israel. How much of that do we obey and how much do we not obey? How much are we required to and how much aren't we required to as the church? Well, let's just put it this way. At the bare minimum, we would say that we should apply, uh, obey everything that Christ tells us to do. All that the law of Christ says, we should obey. Everybody agrees with that, right? So let's just stick with that. And obey everything he tells us to do. I do believe that Acts 15 does clear up a lot of the questions of whether or not we should circumcise our children on the eighth day and keep all the holy, sacrifice, uh, holy holidays of the Jewish people. However, by the grace of God, we keep the law of Christ. <laughs> we do it not to attain salvation. We do it not to get some standing with God that God will somehow say, okay, you're good enough, come on in. We don't do it for that reason. We do it because our King, Jesus, obeyed for us. 
And he did what we couldn't do, and therefore we, out of love and honor and respect, we obey him. We enjoy him. And again, that does not mean that we never sin, does it? No one in this room is perfect. We all look to Christ. So as we go through the law of Christ, and as Christ exposes the law to us, what's going to naturally happen to every, us, every one of us in the room that are evaluating our own hearts? We're going to be what? Crushed, convicted, aren't we? And as we're convicted, do one main thing. I want you to get one main thing out of this. If you get nothing else, don't go out and clean yourself up. Go to Christ. Run to Him. Ask Him, Lord, clean me up. Help me to walk in obedience. We saw it in our Sunday school this morning. The Spirit of God was given in the New Covenant for the purpose of what? The fruit of the Spirit. To obey the Lord. We have the Spirit of God living in us and we get to enjoy Him. Our Christ's commandments, burdensome. Only when we're focused on ourselves. <laughs> Only when we're thinking about ourselves. But when we're thinking about Him, they are privileges and opportunities to rejoice in obedience. The passage we will cover, the passages we will cover over the next weeks will give the king's requirements for his subjects. He speaks authoritatively, numerous times saying, I say to you. Well, that should be a little light go off, going off in our heads, right? Listen up. Jesus is speaking. We need to pay attention. He speaks with authority. He expects our obedience. And He even empowers us by the Spirit of God to obey those commands. I've got good news for you. As believers in Jesus Christ, God does not give us commands that He doesn't also empower us to obey. As a parent, that is one of my biggest struggles. I admit it. I often want so much. You, you know those moments when you're saying, okay, I'm going to tell you to do something. I want you to obey. Please obey. Let me say it again. Please, 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 please obey. Do what I say. This is very important. You'll say it like 14 different times. You make sure you get this. This is so important. Obey. And you tell them what to do and they do what? The opposite. And you're like, oh. And then deep down in my soul, you know what I'm thinking to myself. You're probably thinking it too as parents. Oh, please, God, change their little hearts. <laughs> For it's only by His grace that they will obey. Now you say, well, what about those spankings? Yeah, they work. They work. They will train a conscience to do what is right. But often they train the outside of the cup, if we're honest. A spanking has never changed a heart in the history of mankind. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that causes people to want to obey. It's knowing Jesus and knowing what He did for you, that's what will cause you to follow Him and obey Him. Ultimately, it's a love for God. That's found in the cross of Christ and the resurrection of our Savior that motivates us to obey the King's commands. So we look today at the exposition of the law. The exposition of the law starts in verse 21 and goes down through 47. Jesus gave six antithetical statements concerning the law. He starts it with a phrase like, you have heard it said, or you have heard that the ancients say, or, or something like that. And then says, but I myself say to you, emphatically, but I myself say to you. So Jesus was seeking to overthrow wrong oral traditions that had distorted the true meaning and purpose of the law. 
He was also speaking authoritatively as an exposition of the law. He was explaining the law, exposing what it meant, and calling the people to obedience. Again, these statements are antithetical to the teaching of the religious ones of Jesus' days. His statements opposed the oral traditions. They contradicted the traditions. They were contrary to the religious elite's added commands. Conflicting with the Pharisees and scribes' explanation of the law. The context of the Pharisees and Sadducees and and scribes are important for us to keep in mind. Especially the Pharisees and scribes, because most likely Jesus is speaking to the, to the common uh, middle class, for lack of a better term, uh, religious Jew in, these sermon on, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the location that he was speaking to. And they were highly influenced by the Pharisees and scribes and the religious system that was promoted at their day. The Hebrew word for Pharisees, I found out this week, it literally means separated. Separated. It gives an important clue into the priority of these Pharisees. Separated. What does that mean? They were pious. They were separated. Separated from the world. They had an emphasis on personal piety. They were fluent in all 613 laws of the Torah. They required strict obedience to the oral tradition also. In fact, the oral tradition was somewhat of a commentary on those 613 laws. But in in fact, the commentary exposed some real problems in their hearts as they had come up with these oral traditions. They had made it all about the external, all about do's and don'ts, but not the heart and what was going on inside the soul. It was about looking good on the outside. They were mainly lay leaders, those Pharisees, who were also businessmen. So people knew them and they were common and they were very popular among the people. They believed that the word was, the Pharisees that is, was inspired by God. But they also believed the oral tradition was authoritative. So what happens when oral tradition becomes just as authoritative as the word of God? Well, before you know it, it's, it's trumping it. It's above it. It's so important that the Word of God becomes less important. The same thing has happened in the Roman Catholic Church. We know this, right? The tradition of the church and what the Pope speaks over the years it becomes just as important and equal in authority to what? The Scriptures themselves. And what's happened? The loss of the Word of God. The need for the Scriptures. Going back to what God is saying and obeying what God says. Jesus is using this sermon to correct these wrong-thinking Pharisees and the wrong-thinking that had infiltrated the disciples' thoughts. It is very important for us to make note of this about worldview, just for a second here. I want you to understand that you're influenced by who you're around. The people that you hang out with, your parents, your culture, your lives, you live around this and it becomes how you think, even without making note of it. It just becomes your presuppositions. It's who you are. It's how you think. Some of us don't even realize how much the influence is there. Most of us don't. But the Word of God has a way of cutting through all of that. It has a way of cutting through all of our wrong worldviews, all of our wrong presuppositions, and showing us, nope, that's wrong. This needs to be good. This needs to go. This person's thought process, nope, that's wrong. We can think and listen to people, but if we're focused on the Word of God, studying the Word of God, spending time in the Word of God, and hearing what Jesus says to us, it will inform a correct worldview. And then we will live to honor the Lord. Jesus is going to give us these antithetical statements to correct and direct the disciples on how they should walk in the truth. They needed this correction of worldview. As Carson states, these verses make one great point. The Old Testament law forbidding murder must not be thought adequately satisfied with no blood has been shed. 
Rather, the law points toward a more fundamental problem. Man's vilifying anger. Jesus, by his own authority, insists that the judgment thought to be reserved for the actual murderer is in reality hanging, hangs over the wrathful, over the wrathful, the spiteful, the contemptuous. What man then stands uncondemned? End quote. Carson gets it. The point is, is that Jesus is saying, look, it's not just about being a physical murderer. It's about what's going on in your heart. And the fact of the matter is, is as we read through the Sermon on the Mount, nobody in here should say, I'm okay. I'm fine. I got this. I don't murder. Right? Most of us in the room. If we read the Ten Commandments, we might be able to say and think in our minds, well, I don't do that. I'm, I'm, you know, I have not committed adultery. I have not murdered anybody. I don't lie anymore. Right? Beloved, listen. Jesus is calling us to evaluate our hearts in light of the law of God. And he gives a great exposition. So I had asked for you to pray for the Lord to expose your heart. Show what the Word of God says to you. As we go through this Sermon on the Mount, none of us should ever walk away thinking, I got this. We should all remind our hope, be reminded our hope is not in ourselves, but in the Lord. So our passage today breaks down into three sections. Let's look at them briefly. First, there's the oral tradition's expansion of the law, found in verse 21. And then there's the Lord's exposition of the law in verse 22. And the Lord's application of the law, found in verses 23 to 26. Let's walk down through this. The oral tradition's expansion of the law in verse 21. Let's start with that. In verse 21, notice it says, You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Here we see, very clearly, Jesus quotes the sixth commandment in the first half of the verse. Exodus 20, verse 13. You shall not commit murder. It's very important that the oral tradition would include that. They would say, hey, you can't murder. But they added just one little thing. And I want you to notice the added part that's not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's, it's subtle. You look at it and say, what's the big deal? Notice it states, and, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Well, of course. What's wrong with that? That sounds like a pretty good exposition. You're going to be liable. You're going to be judged if you commit murder. Does everybody in the room agree with that? We all agree with that. It's important to note, though, that he's most likely referring to the court of the Jews. Most likely pointing again, just subtly, to what's the focus? The focus is not on whether you commit murder before God and you will be judged by Him, but the focus is on the court. What other people think and how they would judge you. And how you will be judged by the court of law. Now, isn't it important for us to know that if you commit murder or you steal something, that you could be arrested today? Yes, it is. Very, very important that you know that. If you understand that, guess what you won't do, children? You won't murder and you won't steal. If you're afraid of going to jail, guess what? That's a good thing. That's something to fear and recognize, correct? But it waters it down very slightly. Because their motives should be more than just what? What other people think. Whatever, what could happen to us here? The same is true for us. Oh, parents, listen to me. As we disciple our children and we point our children, if, the, uh, if it's always about what dad and mom are going to do if I do this wrong, 
then we've missed the whole point. We are doing the same things the Pharisees did. We're teaching our kids to what? Fear us instead of fear Him. Subtle, isn't it? There's not a lot of change in the original command. However, Jesus is going to confront and call them to think bigger and understand a greater thing. He also talks about, and very slightly, and they don't talk about it much in uh, the oral tradition and never did, the motive behind murder. Why do people murder? What is it that causes somebody to do something so barbaric? To go into a, a, into a, class, a school and shoot people up. What would cause somebody to do this craziness? Why would somebody stand in Vegas and shoot down on a crowd of people and murder countless people? Why would people do that? Everybody in the room probably asked that question, right? Why would somebody do that? I hear it on the news. Did y'all, have y'all heard it in the news? They say it, it never fails every time there's a shooting. They always ask the question, why? And I'm like, I got the answer! I got the answer! Can I give you the answer? Wicked heart! Wicked hearts! I got one too! You do too! That's what Jesus is saying. That's our problem. No, 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 no. He has some psychological disorder. I'm sorry. Now look, I'm not saying, I'm not going all the way over to this side to say that there's no brain issues. I'm not saying any of that, but I'm telling you, the man had a wicked heart. Simple. And you were born with the same one. The same exact one. Apart from the common grace of God, we'd all be those people. Jesus then begins to un- address the motives behind the murderer. This brings us to the contrasting exposition. Notice the Lord's exposition of the law in verse 22. But I say to you, ooh, that I is, should be emphatic. I myself, that is all Jesus. <laughs> it's like, look, this is what they said, but I say. And it is so important because Jesus speaks. When Jesus speaks, we should listen, right? It's authoritative. He's the king. He is going to give a perfect exposition of the sixth commandment. A perfect one. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Wow. You know, when I've gone through this, I've read through it many times. You probably have too. I've always focused in on anger, but there's so much more here. I can't wait to dig in with you. I want you to see some really profound truths that are found in this one verse. This one little sentence that describes the heart of man. Notice first he does say, Everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Angry. Now, I know some of you might have versions that say, uh, without cause, angry without cause. I think that's an addition. I really believe it in my soul. I think Jesus is intentionally leaving it very ambiguous here and saying, and the original was, he is angry with his brother. He just leaves it very ambiguous, very open. And you say, well, wait a second. Didn't Jesus get angry? Did Jesus get angry? Everybody in the room, did Jesus get angry? Did. 
Great. But he says here, everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. I think he leaves that tension there intentionally. What happens when these kind of tensions happen? You must hate your father, mother, brother, sister. When we read a passage like that, what does that do to our souls? Wait, wait. That, you told me to love and honor my mom and dad. How could I hate them? Right? Yes? That tension. What does it do? It makes us really think on what is he trying to say. It dries us and makes us say, wait, 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 wait. What does he mean by angry? That would be important. What does he mean by angry? I need to know. You need to know, don't you? Because if the king tells us not to be angry with our brother, we need to not be angry with our brother. Correct? I believe Jesus intentionally left this high standard with some ambiguity to cause them to evaluate their souls and their hearts and look and think on. How many of you have evaluated whether or not your anger is biblical or not? How many of you have evaluated it the last time you got angry? <laughs> often, often, we don't evaluate it much. We need to let the stark absoluteness confront us and cause us to evaluate our hearts. And ask the question, are we angry in sin or not? Yes, there's exceptions, beloved. Yes, there's allowances for certain kind of anger. But Jesus is making a point here. The natural tendency of the human heart is to what? Get angry unrighteously. That is the natural tendency. Do you understand? The natural tendency of our heart is to get angry because somebody has offended us. Not to get angry because somebody's offended God. Do you understand? It's often our flesh that causes anger. Our pride that causes anger. Not God's glory and His holiness. Not many of us are wanting to clean out the temple area because God's name's being defamed. Most of the time it's because our honor is being disrespected. Yes or no? Yeah. Anger is often the starting place, along with pride promoting that anger, for much of the evil of the world. It's, it's, it's like the gasoline on the fire, for lack of a better term. Jesus had moments of anger. But it wasn't at times we would have often been tempted to get mad. Often we would just justify those away. Think, well, you know, they're, they're sinners. But when it starts hurting us personally, that's when we get angry. He was over God, he, Jesus was angry over God's righteous purpose of prayer and worship being distorted and eclipsed by the money changing in the temple. Until I started studying this verse, though, I, I, I always assumed the main point Jesus was making here was unrighteous anger towards others is worthy of judgment, like murder. But I think Jesus means much more than this, and he is... He is addressing the heart of man altogether. <laughs> he's, he's describing the heart, the prideful heart of man. You see it in this verse. Notice he rebukes also a demonstration of contempt towards fellow believers. He says, whoever says to his brother, good for nothing. Okay, now I don't know about you guys. But I love how the New, Te the, the New American Standard here just kind of Makes it really light. <laughs> good for nothing? I don't know. Good for nothing. Is that a really harsh thing to say? You good for nothing. 
Well, most of, I don't know about you, but I think to myself, well, that's pretty tame compared to what I hear on Facebook every week. It looks like nothing compared to Twitter. The word is raka. The word good for nothing means empty or lacking intelligence or empty-headed. As Bunker, Archie Bunker would say, blockhead. Man, I dated myself. Most of you in the room don't even know who Archie Bunker is. Meathead, that was another one, yeah. This is looking down, however, brothers and sisters, on other people. Looking at them with contempt. Thinking of them as less than us. And even expressing our disrespect, scorn, or hatred towards others. This is worthy of judgment. This is worthy of standing before the court. Saying good for nothing. But, so murder is bad and worthy of judgment, but so is anger. And also speaking with contempt towards other fellow believers. The point of God's law to not murder was meant to call His people to love and speak to their neighbors with respect and honor. I, I can't stress this enough. We're, you're going to see this in the next one too. What happens is, is when our pride gets hurt, we get angry, but our anger, we've learned how to kind of sugarcoat it so you don't see it all the time. But we are really good at saying those little harsh, snarky words to people. Snapping at people and belittling people. And smacking them with our words. Do you understand that when you hit somebody verbally or attack somebody verbally with your words... You're showing your murderous heart. When you call somebody a name, you treat them with contempt. You're basically saying, I'm a murderer at heart. But Jesus gives one more display of this evil that the law confronts. When he says, thou shalt not murder, he was meaning, look at your heart, you have a tendency to commit murder. You're an evil, vile person. Evaluate your heart. That's what he's saying. The next display is character assassination. Notice it says, whoever says, you fool. Now, at this point, wait a second, doesn't the Bible call people fools? Yes, but when God calls somebody a fool, they are a fool. <laughs> Most of the time, when people call people fools, it's to assassinate their character. The, the, the equivalent for today would be stupid. That's a word we hate in our house. How about you guys? Kids calling other kids stupid. You're stupid. It's the same thing. Boy, can you imagine that devotion? Ladies and gentlemen, fathers, mothers, here you go. Here's your devotion time. They say, you're stupid. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to talk about how that reveals you have a murderous heart. This is what the world does, doesn't it? Character assassination is the way to go today. By the way, that's the way the politics rolls, isn't it? I don't know about you, but I can't watch the TV anymore with the way people talk about each other. It's so discouraging. But again, then I remember, yeah, I'm that same man. The world gets angry with their opponent. They speak with contempt and disrespect towards them. But also it will degrade and seek to destroy the other's character when they can. You fool. The malicious and unjustified harming of a person's reputation is how we win, isn't it? 
Isn't that how you win in this world? The sad thing is, is that any good, logical discussions about anything nowadays, if we try to have any kind of conversation about anything, it always degrades into name-calling. That's the, there is no such thing as a respectful debate anymore, is there? We can't have a decent conversation because what we do is we assassinate the other person's character by calling them names in order to win the debate. This is what Jesus is talking about. The Pharisees were fantastic at being name callers. Why? Because that was permissible. Murder wasn't permissible. But I can slay them with my words because after all, I'm smart, intelligent, and you're a fool. See how... It's horrible, isn't it? But this is who we are. This is our hearts exposed. Disciples of Jesus don't have hatred, though, in our hearts, do we? If we do, we repent of it quickly. We run back to Christ. We don't call people names and run other people down. We're not verbal bullies. We're humble and kind and gentle and respectful of people. That's who Christians are, right? Right? But we don't look like that. Oh, there's a problem, isn't there? We all need to evaluate our hearts in these areas. When we are angry towards others, we should reveal Christ instead of reveal our wicked propensities. When we speak down towards others with contempt, we reveal our hearts are really wretched. When we run other people down, we're... We are revealing we have a murderous heart. You know, as, as I was thinking on this this week, one of our problems is, is that, and, and here's, here's the confession time. I, this is pastor, I always do it. We sometimes start out with righteous anger. We can actually start out with right motives. I don't like it when such and such does this. It's an affront to God, it's sinful. It hurts people. But then as we engage the conversation, our pride gets involved. And before we know it, that our, our anger has turned from righteous anger to what? Unrighteous anger. And we begin to speak with contempt and disrespect and malign the character of the other person in order to win the battle. Like our world wins. They win by slaying people with their words. But followers of Christ must be different. That's why we don't hold on to bitterness. We don't allow anger to fester in our hearts. I don't know about you, but I can't stay angry at my wife because if I do, I'll say something mean. Yes? It's better for me to let love cover and just move on than to let that bitterness grow in my heart. Because if I don't, I will do something that I shouldn't do. We need to evaluate our hearts in these areas. Jesus exhorted his disciples, evaluate the motives of your heart. We must kill anger and bitterness in our souls. We must avoid wretched name-calling. We must speak with honor and respect to one another. All of this is possible as we humbly seek the Lord. As we abide in Him. As we enjoy Him. As we follow Christ. And as we understand His love for us. We then show love like this. As we're fixed on Christ no matter what others do to us. We are able to respond with grace and gentleness and kindness. Not in anger and contempt, 
and character assassination. Look over at Romans chapter 12. I think these verses are so crucial. After the gospel has been given and it's clear in our minds how we should think and how we should act, Paul clearly lays out how we should react to people. And he explains it so well. How to deal with people. This is an acceptable sacrifice to God. As we live for God and show off His glory and treat people the way they're supposed to be treated, we show off that we believe the gospel and that Christ is our Lord and we want to serve Him. And we act like this, verse 14, 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind towards one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Isn't pride always found in these? <laughs> it's always addressed. Be humble. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, insult them. Feed them. Feed them. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what the believer does. That's an exposition of the law of thou shalt not murder. An explanation. We need a heart change, don't we, beloved? And then we need that continual change that the Spirit of God works within us. As we put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit of God that's working in us, right? That's what we do. Finally, notice Jesus gives some practical applications. Back in our passage in 23 to 26. The way Jesus applies these principles to the disciples was to give two case studies. They're brief. They're easy to understand. He gave two possible opportunities to show love to those where anger and contempt and character assassination might be thought to be the first action. Don't go down the anger route. Don't go down the route of treating somebody with contempt. Don't go down the route of character assassination. Instead, do this. Look at the first example, verse 23. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar, and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Boy, this confronts it, doesn't it? This explains it very well. <laughs> One of the commentators said this, and I love it. It was very interesting. He made the point that, I'm paraphrasing, he made the point that if people really got this message, I wonder how many churches would be half empty by the time the service was over. Would people run out of the room? Interesting, isn't it? Oh, beloved, listen. Jesus makes it very clear. If you're there to present offerings, that is, you're there to worship at the temple, and you've got bitterness and problems in your heart, and somebody else probably has problems in their heart towards you, what should you do? Go to them! Now, is Jesus saying, every time you're confronted with this, run out real quick. 
Well, I think his point is, is that you shouldn't have something when you come in. Correct? I mean, that's ultimately the solution. If you know you have people that are angry at you or bitter at you, what should you do? Go to them and talk to them. I'll tell you, I think one of the biggest problems with marriages, and I'll be honest, is that when somebody, there's at least one or two people in the, both, one or both in the marriage, have something they got in their craw, I know. It's stuck there. And they never deal with it. They never talk about it. They just, it's back there. You did this to me. And so there's bitterness and anger and everybody's always looking at each other and they never have peace. I'm so thankful for my short memory and my wife's. I can preach the same message two weeks in a row and I would be encouraged. Y'all might not be. But I would. I'm thankful for my short memory because after all, if my wife remembered everything I did wrong, or I remembered everything she did wrong, we'd have a marriage that was a mess. If all we did was constantly hold these grudges against each other. But Jesus calls us and says, look, if you're worshiping and you got something against somebody, or somebody has something against you, he says that your brother has something against you implies that you probably have something against them. There's friction. It's not reconciliation. Go to them. I don't know about you guys, but at this point I'm thinking to myself, well, I've tried. Anybody in here say that? I've tried. I've tried. What do I do? Well, here's what you do. You pray. You pray. You ask the Lord to help you. You ask the Lord to convict you. You ask the Lord to help you to show love despite who they may be and what they do to you. And you repent of any sin in your own heart. And you be humble in the way you talk to them. And you acknowledge where you've blown it. How about this for a competition in all marriages? Instead of us trying to figure out what our spouse does wrong and exhorting them to fix it, how about we have a competition to see what's wrong in our own hearts and confess it to the other? That would be a whole different marriage, wouldn't it? That would be reconciliation and we'd come to church. And we'd actually be able to smile and sing. <laughs> It'd be great, wouldn't it? Because our consciences wouldn't be destroyed. Anybody else have a problem this morning coming to church? Hey, it's, it's real great for me. I, I know I'm speaking. I, I, it's very close now. We don't have the fights in the car on the way over. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> There's no spitballs hitting the back of my head. All the way down the road. But beloved, we should seek to be at peace with all men. You can't sing to the top of your lungs with joy over the glory of Christ if you have bitterness in your soul towards other people. You can't. The second situation, notice he, he states, make friends quickly. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge, the officer, and you be thrown in prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. His point in that last phrase, by the way, is just to say that judgment will be precise. It will happen. He's teaching the idea here again. If you're on the road to court, we could talk to some of our lawyer friends in the room. They would know all about this. 
If you're on the road to court with somebody next to you that's trying to sue you for all that you have, what's the tendency? Well, to think bad about that person over there. What are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? Right? And the other person's thinking, I'm going to get you. I'm going to take everything you got. Because you hurt me. Right? What's Jesus' point here? Reconcile. Reconcile. Be at peace with all men. Hey, what do, I, what do you need? How can we make this right? What can I do to make this right? I'm willing to sacrifice. Hey, you need my goat? Here, have it. You'll talk about this a little bit. The problem is, is that it really hasn't changed, has it, since Jesus' time? We say we are a very litigated, litigated society, aren't we? Well, they did it too. Why? Because everybody was this way. And the heart of man is what? It's this way. It's because we're all obsessed with who? Ourselves. Yes. We're obsessed with ourselves. And another one, we're, we think everybody owes us something. <laughs> yes? Now, here's the problem. I don't know about you, but when somebody starts telling me, you owe me something, what's the natural tendency? <laughs> Let me explain something to you. I don't owe you anything. <laughs> so what's that when I say it that way? It's actually pride. Oh, did you hear that? Wait, 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 wait. Did you hear that? When you bow up that somebody owes you something, what are you basically saying? I don't owe you anything. You're actually what? Building yourself up. I'm going to trudge into a very, very dark, uh, very, very difficult subject right now with two minutes left to go in the service. Maybe I shouldn't. Somebody recently said in a, a Twitter post that uh, all Caucasians need to take ownership and say that my grandparents were complicit in the death of Martin Luther King in a, in a, in a Twitter post. Let me tell you something. When I read it, what do you think the first reaction was out of my soul? What did my grandparents do to that? What are you doing? I'm not they're not responsible for him. What did I begin to do? Defend. There's a sense where I just wanted to defend me and my house and my generation and my family. Right? Is that not natural? It's natural. But, very short behind that was pride. I don't agree with the guy's statement at all. I think it's wrong. But he doesn't know me from Adam. And the only thing that really matters is what God thinks of me. And I'm going to stand before God with what I do. And my grandparents are going to stand before God with what they did. And my great-grandparents are going to do, stand before God with what they did. And I need to not get so offended if somebody confronts me or my grandparents. I need to just be humble enough to say, that's your opinion. Okay, we'll see in the end. Do you hear what I just said? That eliminates the discussion, doesn't it? I don't agree with what he said, but guess what? <laughs> 
he's going to stand before God and I'm going to stand before God. And I got to just, I'm going to stand before him. God, that's all that matters. And I need to not take it offensively. And I need to not call the guy a name. And I need to not respond on Twitter, well, you're a wacko. Or, well, you're this. Or you're that. Or you're this. Because then what did I do? I did the same thing as everybody else in the world. We need to get away from it. Get out of the arguments. Love your neighbor and be humble. May God give us this kind of grace, right? May God be glorified and humbled followers of Christ at Grace Bible Church of Tampa. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness towards us. Help us to be people that seek to be at peace with all men. Help us, Lord, to honor you, to serve you, to love you, to enjoy you, to obey you. To not take so many things personal. But to realize that you are God. You are king. To not return evil for evil. But overcome evil with good. We thank you for Christ Jesus that shows us the way. And we thank you for his death on our behalf that paid for all that pride. That is still displaying itself in our lives. Help us, Father, to repent of sin quickly, to honor you, to glorify your name always. We pray this in the matchless name of King Jesus. Amen.